Today's reading is 1 Samuel, chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. No, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. It can be found on page 251 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May, the, may God deal with you, be it ever so severely if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, let us pray. Our gracious God, the, your word came through Samuel to all of Israel, and we pray that your word comes to us, continues to come to us, and, and comes to us now, whether we find ourselves very open or quite close to it, whether we find ourselves joyful at the idea or, or scared of the idea, whether we feel far from you and like your voice just never seems to reach our ears or whether we feel uh, strangely close, 
whether we feel regretful because one time we were so close, but now we're not, or whether it's the opposite journey for us today. Wherever we are, we need your help. We need this story, the story of these scriptures that continue to introduce us to your grace, a grace that moves towards people whose lives are broken, whose devotion is flawed, and you choose to move towards flawed people. We ask that you do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. I just love this story. I want to start with um, just asking a basic question. What if, the, what if the voice of God, it's one of these big higher level spiritual questions, what if the voice of God was much more of the driving force of your life? You really felt like that statement was, was true about how you live. The voice of God is the driving force in my life. If there's a, you know, like sort of a sweetness to, to God's voice and to the, to the message of God in your life, there's sort of an ear-tingling realness to the presence of God because God's voice is something you, you in a sense, hear. Well, what does that all mean? I guess we'll get into it, but just consider that question. What if the voice of God was directing your life a little more? Um, what does that look like? For me, it's an interesting idea. It's a very personal idea because... Um, when I was eight years old, right around the time when I was first beginning to read the Bible on my own, I know it's a weird concept to think about, a little eight-year-old, um, and now I've had an eight-year-old, and so it's strange to picture myself and, and what this must have been like for my parents, but I was reading the Bible on my own, and at that same time as I'm opening up myself to what I thought of as God's words, the, clear, the crystal clear message began to be sort of almost internal to me that my life direction, my calling, as I would even say it, would be to, to deal with this as a, for the rest of my life, to be a minister um, dealing with Scripture. The idea that in the midst of listening to it, that kind of message would become extremely clear. And something that to this day, I still, if I, sometimes I have these days where I think, what if I wasn't doing this? I have no backup plan. <laughs> you know? I mean, and just in the sense of this fits so well to, to my, my soul. Um, that I can't, it's like, I don't, I don't even know. I hope I never have that day where I have to do something else because what would I do? Um, I think of, you know, what does this look like, God's voice being the driving force in your life? I think about a couple of people who have been in our, now it's our ninth month journeying together of dive, and I think of a couple people who have, um, just through this group and through looking at our spiritual, spiritual journeys, have decided to connect once a week over the reading of scripture and talk about it and how not only is that a fruit of this nine months spending time together, but um, it's something that I can, I'm already seeing as I'm talking to these people, the fruit growing out of, that, of, of spending that time hearing God's voice. I think it looks a little bit like that. Um, anybody know of Augustine, St. Augustine? You've heard of that name? So I think of Augustine and his big event in becoming a Christian. It's fairly, he wrote, him, he wrote about it himself in sort of his autobiography called The Confessions. And so his life was in the dumps. He was at this rock bottom kind of place spiritually and he was in a garden by a road and he was, he was sobbing. He was crying. It was just one of those days for St. Augustine. And he was, um, you know, he was, he was just in this gloom. 
with respect to all the things going on in his life. He was in doubt about everything. And so he's, he's sobbing, he's crying, it's fairly private. And as he's doing this, he's calling out to God in sort of a general way. He doesn't really know what he believes yet, but he's saying things like, how long, O oh Lord, how long? And he's just processing the mess of his life. And as he's having this moment of just utter rock bottom on this day, he hears a voice kind of coming over from the road. And he doesn't know who it was or, or why they were saying, but this, this word was saying over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he tells about it, and he goes, immediately goes over, and this is his word. So I snatched up the apostle's book, and he actually is going to be reading from a part of the book of Romans. He says, I opened it and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. And it said, not in rioting or drunkenness, not in chambering uh, and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. He said, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instance, instantly, listen to this, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom and doubt vanished away. The voice of God leading and directing your life. Um, and you don't have to be Saint Augustine to be able to have that kind of interaction. I mean, he was already a pretty smart guy, but he wasn't yet the Augustine that we know, the church leader and the writer and the theologian. Um, and you don't have to be like Augustine because of this thing that, I don't know if anybody's heard of the, the phrase perspicuity of Scripture. Anybody heard of that pretentious theological phrase perspicuity of scripture this was um this is a phrase you're not supposed to know that phrase but people like me who you know have more schooling than you blah 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 are supposed to know words like this no actually i'm, I'm almost embarrassed to use this kind of language but the, the the term means something in the history of the church um really all throughout the history of the church but put really well in the time after the reformation in a document called the westminster confession of faith perspicuity meaning there's a sort of clarity to it um, that it's effective enough for, for, for just the average person picking it up and reading like Augustine did. So this is the language of the, the confession, Westminster. Those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, who know the word perspicuity, but the, but the unlearned... <laughs> in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain into a sufficient understanding of them. Do you get the point? That anybody can pick this up and read and get what you need to get out of it in terms of God's voice. And this is why, um, as in, in Reformation times, Martin Luther, maybe you know about his translation of uh, the Bible into German and how it had this huge influence on the German language. He was intent on getting it in the hands of everyone, in the vernacular, you know, in the common speech. Because of this strong belief, you don't have to be, you know, you can pick it up. You don't need, a, in the day of Luther, you know, you needed a, a churchman with education to tell you what it meant, you know, who was trained and all. No, anybody can pick it up and read. So let's get that going. That's Luther. One historian said that Luther's goal was to equip every German-speaking Christian with the ability to hear the word of God. That was his goal. 
and it's directly connected to something else. In Latin, this is a less pretentious phrase, but um, it gets thrown around a lot, sola scriptura, the idea that, that on scripture alone is what we base the different teachings of the church and the Christian faith. Um, a very strong idea that, um, let's just, another historian puts it this way. That, and he says, this is not something that just came up in Reformation times. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. This historian named William Webster says, from the very beginning of the post-apostolic age, with the writings of what became known as the apostolic fathers, there is an exclusive appeal to, to the scriptures for the positive teaching of doctrine. And he goes on to say, there was no appeal in any of these writings to the authority of tradition as a separate and independent body of revelation. Sola Scriptura. Um, it was universal from the earliest times of the church to look um, this way to Scripture. Now, what is, okay, let's bring it down to earth because these are some base, sola scriptura, perspicuity. Um, these are things that actually really connect um, in the nitty gritty of life. And so you bring it down to earth and you have this, um, let me just read a prayer that was discovered being prayed by Christians in the mountains of Haiti. Sort of a prayer that got passed on, among other prayers that were discovered by, of these people. These groups of Christians would pray this regularly. They'd say, we, Father, we are all hungry baby birds this morning. Our heart mouths are gaping wide, waiting for you to fill us. That's what it starts to look like to to look to God's voice to lead your journey, to lead your life. Um, is that you? Consider your life. Is that you? And if, if not, why not? I, I think probably a lot of us, a lot of our friends, you know, it just comes down to a sort of level of, of cynicism towards this whole topic. Um, the idea that, okay, well, you say it's God's voice, but, you know, can't someone look at one passage of Scripture and have a totally different idea than the next person? And whose voice, I mean, in the end, whose voice really is it? Isn't it just everyone kind of putting their, hearing what they want to hear? Isn't it really just your own voice clanking around in your own head and in your own heart? In the end, and in the end, I think most of us are pretty settled, and even if you're devoted a reader of scripture trying to follow this, I think in the end our biggest problem ends up being, what, we're, what are we listening to? Our own voice. Our own voice just kind of has this place in our life and we actually do find ourselves hearing what we want to hear and not hearing what maybe we need to hear. I don't know. And just one of the questions is, how's, how's that going for you? You know, that, that journey of your voice, God's voice, where are you at? How's that working? In the time of Eli, where when the story begins, there's an era in the history of Israel between sort of the conquest and then the final wrap-up with David um, that's about to come in this book. There's this period where Eli is, he's an old guy by the time we're reading this story, but he's the, the sort of spiritual leader of Israel, a prophet of sorts, and he has his two sons who are now running the temple business, the, the things that need to go on at the temple, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, and Hophni and Phinehas, and in a lot of ways Eli as well, have that same issue that most of us are struggling with that I just described, that the voice that they were listening to was their own. So with Hophni and Phinehas, what that meant is that there were stories rampant. I, it might be really hard for us to imagine what this was like to hear these stories because it went like this. Actually, 
you can sense my sarcasm. It, it, it's not hard for us to imagine. These are the kind of stories that were coming out. That the, um, the people at, top, at the top levels of religious life were involved in sexual abuse scandals. Um, that, you know, the, they had the, their newspapers, as it were, said the same things ours do. And it's, you know, it's not hard for us to imagine that also right along with that was that these, these uh, chief religious leaders at the top levels were also corrupt financially and full of greed in their participation with people. So all of that's described in other places here, but basically what it means is, is it's this grand picture of listening to your own voice and where that takes us. And as we enter into the story, the message is clear. There's going to be a new era. There's going to be a new thing happening. It has everything to do with God's voice. As you open it up, I was just kind of almost chuckling to myself as it was read because it's so easy. Most of us, we come here and, and someone starts reading and it takes about till halfway through that you actually kind of wake up to kind of the drama of the story or whatever. And, um, and you miss some of the best stuff in that kind of phase because as the first few sentences of this story are spoken... Um, you have these words. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were few. There were not many visions. And then it's, there's these layers of meaning here, and how the, the it, it's incredibly um, gifted narration, because then it goes from saying there there weren't many visions to saying, and then there's this guy Eli, and his vision was weak, and he could hardly see. There's layers of meaning here. So the one who is the spiritual leader, even his vision, physically, but also metaphorically, is weak. But then you read this in verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Double meaning. I mean, there, there really is a lamp that really this night when, when Samuel hears God's voice, it really hadn't gone out yet. But also it's right there along with, there weren't visions, and the leader had bad vision, but the lamp the light hadn't completely gone out. There's a psalm, Psalm 119. It's the, I dare you to read it tonight because it's the longest chapter in Scripture. It's the longest psalm that exists. It goes on forever. Um, but one of the verses says, it's, it's verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And this passage is saying as we begin that the lamp had not yet gone out. God was about to enter into the story. What happens, though, is Eli is so dull and his vision spiritually is so weak and has become dull that it takes, it's almost comical, it takes three times of this exchange of Samuel hearing a voice and coming to the elderly Eli and saying what happened for him to finally, it finally snaps. It's, it's been kind of pushed so far into the background, the idea of this interaction with God and hearing God's voice that, oh, see, the lamp hasn't fully gone out, but his vision is weak. And so he says, oh, here's what you do. Here's the instructions. Now I know what's going on. And so Samuel goes and hears what I think for this story, this is the part where you probably woke up as, as it was read. The part where it starts to talk about God's judgment and no sacrifice will cover the sins of the family of Eli. And it just all of a sudden you're going, what on earth is going on? And it gets your attention. You know, the, the, the Old Testament variety of judgment. You know, we're not excited always to open up the passages of Scripture to talk about this. I actually think, though, that this is a case where there's probably a part of you that's really glad for it. Because what's basically ha- happening here is that God is saying, yes, this, this, this priestly abuse scandal where young women are getting taken advantage of regularly and... Um, 
and financially there's corruption, God in this case is going to enter in and do something directly. No corpse, no figuring out who said what and what was hidden for decades. God takes this this kind of scandal, this kind of abuse of his representation so seriously that he just, he says, this is going to, things are going to change. My voice is going to enter into things. In a sense, what he says, it's striking how he says it. Um, The words he uses, he talks about, um, he basically, in the, in the Hebrew of this, he's basically says it's a very strange construction, but it's intentional, is that he says, I'm going to do a word. It, it comes out several ways in this passage. I'm going to do a word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a word, and it's going to make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. There's going to be a new life, a new vibrancy, a new sense of God's presence in this whole land, because I'm going to do a word. See, because for God, we, we have this saying, you know, talk is cheap. You know, oh, yeah, that's what you say, but I'll see what you do, you know. Talk is cheap. Are you going to walk the walk or talk the talk? You know, we all these ways of talking about this, right? And with God, talk is not cheap. With God, there's this whole history of that same word that I was saying, I'm going to do a word. It's a Hebrew word for talking and for words, and there's different words that are used in Hebrew, but this is the one that goes all the way back to the first time that we hear about God talking Genesis chapter 1, when everything was made. And if you realize, very interesting to read Genesis 1 because God doesn't say, like I would have to say, like, I'm going to go make something. And then you'd say, well, are you going to walk the walk? Are you going to go do it the next day? God just says, says it out loud, let there be light. And then light is while he speaks it. He, his words are active. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this comes out in the New Testament. The word of God is living and active. It's like a sharp, double-edged sword in our life. It penetrates into our hearts. And then it says it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Um, I was uh, in a coffee shop this week, and I overheard someone saying uh, something. So I started talking to them. They were talking about they got their results five days ago, but they haven't looked at them. And basically, they were talking about the LSAT test, and I saw all this work that had gone into this. And she said, I got my results five days ago, but I haven't looked at them yet. Right? This, and you could just kind of feel like they, she just had this look of terror on her face. And, um, and I think of uh, that with this, this story because Eli, you catch what Eli did? Samuel gets this message. It's like Samuel intercepted the mail, you know, of a rejection letter or something like that. And like Samuel might choose to kind of hide it because he doesn't want the bad news to pass on. But Eli's, Eli's not the one to, to hold the news off for five days. He says, tell me now and give it all to me straight. And this is a little insight into Eli is that he's been living in a sense with God's word like a lot of us end up living. I, I think C.S. Lewis put it really well, this amazing quote that I found from his work on the problem of pain. He says, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, says Lewis, not so much a father in heaven, but a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. That's, you know, in a lot of ways, that is Eli, and that's been his way for far too long, treating God's word this way, and he's been avoiding for far too long, and it's eating at him. It's eating at him. 
And now he's ready because he knows the word of God. He knows it needs to judge the thoughts and attitudes of his heart. And he knows kind of where he stands and what's gone down. So, and as the story closes, there's this, it's very clear as you read the final verses of this, what's happening. The theme continues. The Lord was with Samuel. None of Samuel's words fell to the ground. Everyone attested him as a prophet from God. The Lord continued to appear like that at Shiloh and reveal himself to Samuel through his word. And then it says, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. It's very clear that God is at work. God is donning a new era of his voice. There's a transformative moment that we are led into here in the lives of Israel. And I think it it gives us pause to consider the same kind of transformative possibility in our own lives and in, in in this church and in our individual lives. This transformation of God's word taking center stage, leading us, directing us. And I just want to say, I, um, you know, you, you come to a story, you look at a story like this, and you know that a lot of people are going to read a story like this, and then when they're in my position, um, I know it's tempting to, to think, like, the thing to say is to sort of shake your finger at people and say, now, make God's word more important in your life, you know. Work hard and get that in there, because that's what you got to do. I really want to emphasize how the story goes. As you look at the end and at the beginning of the story, you realize that, you know, the trajectory of things is going along a lot like it is in our lives. And, and what is the difference now? It's God. God decides now's the time for my voice to be more central. God decides now's the time for this person, Samuel, to kind of come and to be a voice piece. Just have that kind of faith and that trust that it's not shaking your finger. It's more of looking to God and saying, hmm, what might be happening? What might God be up to? And as you do that, I think that you can be convicted. I think that you can hear this all and have a longing. You can have a longing for this. You can have a longing for God's voice in your life. And it can lead you to pursue God's word, God's voice. It can lead you to pray for God to do this. So my last, two, um, my last little two notes are this. Reasons why to even pursue it. Reasons why to pray. And it's because with God's word leading your life at the center of your life, you have new vision and you have joy. Vision and joy. The, um, first of all, vision. There's this uh, Reformation document called the Belgic Confession. It says that all of us, it's talking about scripture and our need for scripture and for God's word. And it says, we, this is a great thing that the Belgic Confession offers your life. We are all liars by nature, it says, and more vain than vanity itself. That phrase is given in the midst of the idea of Scripture and why we need it. Um, That our vision is cloudy, in a sense, spiritually, as we look out in the world. That um, we're a lot like Eli with his vision. It's kind of messed up, kind of not seeing straight and clearly. And so the reformer, John Calvin... In the midst of the Reformation, he often used an analogy of, of spectacles, glasses, being needed, and that's what Scripture's role is in our life. So just this quote, I love this. He says, Just as old or bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet they can hardly construe two words. But with the aid of spectacles, we'll begin to read distinctly. So Scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, we, we, have, we do have knowledge of God bouncing around, but it's confused, it's mixed up. And Scripture, having dispersed our dullness, clearly 
shows us the true God. That's what John Calvin says. Um, I have this, one of my mentors is a pastor in uh, San Francisco. His name's Scott. And Scott has a story of a family he knows who have this child that's, this, that's incredibly cute. And so he's got this story. I'm just going to share it with you because it's so vivid and speaks to this. This little child is extremely cute because he has the Coke bottle glasses. He has the, the glasses that make his eyes look really big. And you know, no matter what comes out of his mouth, it still sounds cute because it's just this cute little picture of a kid. And, he, and he's very um, active as a child. And so... Um, Scott gets a story from the dad about the glasses. There's a whole story behind it when they, when they got the glasses. They had found out that he was extremely um, nearsighted. And so it came down to this day where they had diagnosed it and they were realizing that his vision, he really just was not seeing things the way he could. And so this box comes in the mail and the glasses are in it. And so this is, this is what happens when he gets the glasses. They call him in. They put these glasses that are supposed to give him clear vision. They put them on for the first time. And um, this extremely active, busy child stops, kind of looks around, heads to the backyard, stands right outside the door, and just looks around for like five minutes, just looking at everything, completely still. And then he turns around, he comes back into the house where mom and dad are, and he looks at his dad, and then he looks at his mom, and he spends about ten minutes just looking at her face. Isn't that just kind of... You know, just kind of makes your tingle a little bit just hearing that story, just thinking about that. And I want you to imagine, I want you to think about your life. Is that kind of transformation what it looks like to have God's voice leading everything in your life? Could that be what's happening, what God's looking for there to be in your vision as you look at things? I think of the road to Emmaus when the, after Jesus had died and rose from the dead, they didn't quite know he had risen yet. And so some apostles, uh, disciples were walking along and it says that they were just, um, what's the word? They were uh, kind of gloomy or I think I have it here somewhere. They were downcast. That's what the Gospel of Luke says. And then they meet Jesus. They don't know it's him and, and what he does, he starts explaining the scriptures to them and how all the scriptures point to him. And then they say their hearts were warmed. So they go from downcast to being having warmed hearts and to the end of the story, it says their eyes were opened. And then they recognized it was Jesus at the end of this little story. Is that what, might, what God might do with you through his word? And then the other part is joy. So it gives you vision, but also gives you joy. Just briefly. Martin Luther again, because when you're talking about scripture, you often go back to the great reformers. He says this. He has this, this phrase. He talks about the sweet and joyful exchange. He says, this is what the joyful exchange is, that through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and all that he has becomes ours. He himself becomes ours. He says it's like a bride or a bridegroom who, when they get married, their possessions kind of become joint ownership. That's what happens through Jesus, the joyful exchange. So if you think about it like this, Jesus is described when he comes into the world by the Gospel of John using words that harken back to Genesis 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. So This is how Jesus is talked about. He is the Word. So then pay attention to what happens in Jesus' life. The words that are spoken to Jesus by the Father and words that Jesus speaks. Uh, words were spoken to Jesus by the Father couple of times in his life, including his baptism, and the words were, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Those are your words through this joyful exchange. 
And if you at all doubt how far that extends or how, how much God is pleased with you and how eager he is to be pleased with you, when Jesus was on the cross, the very act that brings about this joyful exchange that Luther was talking about, when he's on the cross, his words are so interesting. They all teach us so much. But one of the things he says is he looks out at those who have put him on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Listen to the words spoken through the word of God on the cross. How eager is he? And if you know this, how much these words are going to keep pointing you back to the fact that you are God's child now through the cross. And he wants you to know how eager his forgiveness stretches out into your life and how, how he makes you new again so that your hearts can burn and so that your eyes can be open with a new joy. What does that do to know that you're in God's arms, that the adoption papers are final, that you are his child and that he's well pleased with you? Let me tell you, if you walk with that in life, anything that has you downcast, anything that's in front of you, anything that you're looking at, you hear those words of God, you hear that word over and over in your life, that you're his child and he's well pleased because of what Jesus has done, it's transformative, absolutely transformative. Let's pray that it'll have that effect in our lives, and in this church. Let us pray. Dear God, in the, day of, in the day of Eli, people felt like it had been a long time since you had gotten involved. And in our time, sometimes we feel the same way. In certain instances, or just in general. So we pray, God, that you bring new vision, that you bring new joy, that you bring new conviction in our lives, perhaps our conviction towards Sundays and towards what it means to have your word brought into our lives on a weekly basis, perhaps conviction towards study, study of your word, memorizing of your word, or engaging in our small groups, our community pods to talk about your word, or maybe involves reading scripture and including scripture in our family life with our children. Would you give us new conviction? Would you bring it to us from the outside, new vision, and new joy to have your word at the center of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.